0: I'm going to read from Luke chapter 1. Pardon me, Matthew chapter 1. Sorry, I got you going in the wrong direction. Uh, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. If you know anything about Herod the Great, he was a madman and a brutal ruler. That he could order the death of um, a large number of children under two years old is... Is characteristic. In fact, he left in his will orders for 100 Pharisees to be executed on the day that he died so that there would be mourning in Israel when he died. So um, Herod was troubled and all Jerusalem with him because if Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way." Reading this old familiar story surprises me at how little information were actually given Matthew provides bare details without embellishment. Um, and, and we're not the first to, uh, to recognize this streamlined quality of the story. I remember when I was in high school and I read this story. I'm you know, reading the Bible for the first time for myself, just by myself. And I, I read it and I said, well, that's not the whole story. Uh, there must be more to it in the other Gospels. But there's not. This is the only place where this story is told, and this is all that, that Matthew gives us. What happened is, over time, storytellers would add to this story their own finishing touch. It's like, oh, well, we need, we need this uh, worked out a little bit more than Matthew did. It's, it's kind of like they're looking at an undecorated Christmas tree, and it's just too plain, and that won't do, and so they want to hang a bunch of ornaments on it, and string lights, and popcorn, or whatever, uh, and that's what they did to the story. Uh, for instance, we've been told that there were three magi, and they are magi, not wise men. We'll go with that, magi. There are three wise men. It doesn't say so in the Bible. Uh, in fact, some people went so far as to name the three magi, that's not given to us. Uh, we picture them coming with a caravan of camels. There's no mention of camels in scripture. Like there's no mention of Mary riding a donkey from Nazareth to Bethlehem, but it's in a lot of our greeting cards. Uh, but, and given the time and place, we'd say, well, of course, they came by camels. We just assume that, and voila, we have camels. In the story, uh, we pick uh, we we place them at the nativity scene. No, um, Jesus, w- w- like Matthew says, after Jesus had been born is when they arrived. Uh, and so, uh, and so we have a, a fuller story that we're familiar with than what Matthew gives us, but. These decorations do not change the story. They're perhaps a poetic attempt at making it more visual. That's a storyteller's craft is add a little here, add a little there, spice it up a bit. Um, Now, three weeks ago, I told you that my Christmas talks would not be profound. They're more like meditations or reflections of my own. Uh, This morning, I'm just going to share some of my thoughts about this story. I chose them intentionally, uh, the Magi, because they came after Jesus was born. In other words, here we are the day after Christmas, and they came um, probably a couple years after Christmas. Uh, That's why they weren't there with the shepherds at the same time. Uh, Jesus is probably about two years old right now. There are indications of that in the text. My first thought is this, that these Christmas guests are worlds apart from the shepherds. The shepherds were homegrown. They were locals. Shepherding had deep roots in Israel's history, history, Uh, Jacob did shepherding for his father-in-law, and he had lots of flocks. Uh, Moses did shepherding for his father-in-law. And, of course, the shepherd par excellence is David, King David. And God said, I took you from shepherding to be king over my people Israel. In other words, what you were as a shepherd is what I want you to be as a leader. It would make a very different kind of leader than what we're used to seeing. Um, but it, it seems right that the shepherds would be the first to, to see this descendant of David's, uh, Jesus, the Christ, the Lord. So those are the shepherds. The Magi were foreigners. Uh, the Greek used the word Magi to refer to uh, Persian priests. They were servants of the kings of Persia. They were known for having some kind of supernatural talent, a gift for dream interpretation or divination. And so they would be consulted regarding important decisions or or issues pertaining to the future. And Daniel, the book of Daniel gives us a really good picture of that. Uh, But the word magi was also used by the Greeks to refer to Babylonian astrologers. And that's most likely what these men were. And that they followed a star would be significant then, wouldn't it? It's like, you know, there was this, this star and this is what it told us. This is what we read from it. Um, now, they're not merely foreigners. That's significant. But Babylon had conquered Israel, had destroyed Solomon's temple, had taken the people exile, and they lived in exile in these two nations, in Babylon and in Persia. So these magi come from that direction and are, by their title, related to Persia and to Babylon. Uh, These were ancient enemies. uh, But here they come looking for uh, Israel's king. Back to the shepherds. The shepherds belonged to the lowest class in Israel. Rus Malina, a social studies historian said, although shepherds could be romanticized as was King David, they were usually ranked with tanners, sailors, butchers, camel drivers, and other despised occupations. Being away from home at night, they were unable to protect their women and therefore were considered dishonorable. In addition, They often were considered thieves because they grazed their flocks on other people's property. The Magi, on the other hand, was a privileged class, and they were honored uh, for being in that class. They arrived in Jerusalem asking for directions. And next thing you know, they have an audience with the king. And uh, they're very comfortable in the king's court, um, and to them, it's no surprise that they would have an audience with this king of, of this much lesser empire than the one where they served. They had the world at their feet, whereas the shepherds were at the feet of the world. The shepherds received the announcement from angels. The magi were given a star. I think that's significant. Both images relate to the heavens, right? But it's the angels of heaven that speak to the shepherds. It's an astronomical wonder that speaks to the, to the magi. So it suggests different connotations, uh, given culture, religion, background, and so on. So we have very different people represented in this larger Christmas story. And and Matthew tells the story of the Magi. Luke tells the story of the shepherds. They tell two different stories uh, having to do with the birth and early life of Jesus. And they tell two different stories because each of them is interested in emphasizing something in particular. Matthew, throughout the whole gospel, features the kingdom of heaven, And Matthew is the only gospel that refers to the kingdom of heaven as the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Mark, Luke, and John refer to the kingdom of God. Only Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. So it's it's special to him. And he, and he, he is concerned that we hear Jesus teaching about this invisible dimension of God that Jesus invites us into and that he says has come. So... He tells us this story in a way that gives us a sense of Jesus' royal status. Here come these emissaries, these dignitaries, to worship the king, the, uh, the child that was born king of the Jews. When the angel brings the announcement to Joseph of what's going to happen with him and Mary and the baby, uh, the angel addresses him as Joseph, son of David, connecting him to Israel's most illustrious king. So Matthew wants us to have ideas about Jesus and the dimensions of the kingdom of heaven. Luke's concern is to present Jesus as a liberator. And there's one really poignant moment in his ministry, right at the beginning of his ministry, where he does that. In Luke chapter 4, he comes to Nazareth and on the Sabbath, he goes into the synagogue. Well, you know, this is his hometown. These are his people. And uh, perhaps uh, they've heard his, of his reputation. He'll make mention of that, in fact. And uh, so it's kind of special. He's almost like an important guest. And they hand the scroll for that morning's reading to him. It's a scroll of Isaiah. He unrolls it to uh, Isaiah 61 where he reads, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he has anointed me to proclaim a release to the captives and to, uh, to heal and to preach the good news to the poor. In other words, he outlines, using Isaiah's prophecy, he outlines his own ministry. I'm here to liberate. I'm here to heal. I'm, I'm here for the poor. These are my concerns. And so Jesus becomes the champion of the poor, of the oppressed, of the sinner, of the outcast. So Matthew and Luke chose the stories that best fit their purpose. And in comparing the two, I think it's significant that the shepherds got to Jesus first, and the Magi came quite a bit later. Not because the shepherds were locals but because of the spiritual significance tied into Israel's tradition and history. Another thought I have about this story is that the the Magi are radically out of place in Jerusalem. They were not descendants of Abraham. They did not have his DNA, so they were not part of the chosen people. They were not Israelites, they had their own nationality. And Matthew, at the end of the story, will say that uh, they returned to their own country. They went back to their own home. Yet, when they saw the star, even though it pointed them toward Israel, they rejoiced. And, and when it appeared a second time, they rejoiced with exceeding Uh, They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, Matthew cannot emphasize uh, the elation that they felt any more than that. Then when they saw Jesus, they fell down and worshipped him. They bowed before this two-year-old. Why? He was not their king. He was not a world emperor that they should respect him as their king. What stake do they have in him? What the heck are they doing here? Is what I'm asking. These important, wealthy, honored people uh, coming into this house, and it's a house now. It's not a stable. There's no manger, okay? Uh, What are they doing coming into this house and bowing before this two-year-old that they've described as the king of the Jews. Matthew is is very careful to outline the fulfillment of scripture in Jesus, especially in these first chapters of Matthew. If you read it, you'll you'll find verses like this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And this comes from chapter 2, but it it starts in chapter 1. Um, and he does this to provide um, what? Um, evidence from Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what he's pointing to. So he keeps going back to Scripture. But for the Magi, he has no equivalent Old Testament passage to quote. They're not fulfilling any prophecy that Matthew knew of or that we know of necessarily. Perhaps he tells us this story of the Magi just to show us how big it is, this this event, Um, and and that it's much bigger than tiny Bethlehem, bigger even than King Herod and all of Judah, That, that they haven't come for the king, they haven't come to be part of this nation, they've come for the child, and maybe Matthew wants us to see that Jesus coming into the world deserves this kind of attention. In chapter 1, when the angel delivers the message to uh, Matthew, we read, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And maybe Matthew is saying, this has worldwide implications, God with us. This is not just for our own little nation, that God with us, that that Emmanuel draws these others to where we are, not because we're here and not because the place is special, but because of who is now among us, the infinite, becoming an infant. Another thought that I have about the Magi is when you think about it, what do we see in the faces of those who surround the Christ child? We see the disheveled and poor. We see the manicured wealthy. We see the very devout like Simeon and and Anna. And uh, we see others who have known only foreign gods And never known Yahweh, the God of Israel. We see people with citizenship status, and we see aliens who have crossed borders in order to see Jesus. We see a multi multicultural mix of races and religions. That's what we see in these faces. The shepherds are local and poor. The the magi are foreigners and wealthy. And by having these polar opposites, it includes everything in between, all the faces that surround the Christ child. And none of these people have been drawn to Jesus against their will. The angel did not tell the shepherds, now, you better get going. Because if you don't, there'll be thunderbolts and you know there'll be extreme me- measures. These people came to Jesus because whatever they had already was not enough. There there were holes in their lives. There were unfulfilled needs, unmet dreams. They came because they were thirsty and he was the fountain of living water. They came because their faith was cold and he was fire. They came because their religion was weak and he is God with us. You can't have better religion than that. They came to Jesus, and as he grew and, and revealed the fullness of all that he was, he opened his arms to him, to every single one who came. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. Though you have Jesus. You do not have him exclusively. I wasn't going to go this direction, but since since we're the only ones who are here, the evangelical church is in trouble. It doesn't know it necessarily. There are evangelicals who don't know it, but it is. It's in decline. In the last seven years, it has dropped significantly. And you know, there are a lot of people who have identified themselves as evangelical Christians and for a long time been faithful in their service to their churches or evangelical organizations who have been questioning over the last few years, is this really all there is? We're doing our duty we're reading our bibles we're sharing our faith we're promoting works for god around the world why do i feel like i'm not getting anywhere and some of them have been on the edge for a while and what's happened in the last few years have been enough to push them off the edge they haven't given up on god or or jesus necessarily some have some just you know said I don't know what that whole thing was about, but I'm not that anymore. What they want, what many of them want, is an experience of God. They have all the words. They have the books. They've had the seminars and conferences. But they want God. They want Emmanuel. When we come to Jesus, we are recruited into the kingdom of God, where there is neither left nor right, resident or alien. Paul says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. I fear for some Christians who assume that their spot in heaven is guaranteed. That either they will not like heaven when they get there because they'll see all the people they've tried to keep out of their churches and country clubs and and state and nation. Or they'll find themselves on the outside looking in. And Jesus spoke to people like that. He said, in that place, and he's talking to people who are convinced that if anyone belonged with Abraham, they did. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. These are the faces that surround the Christ child and all of them are accepted and all of them are loved and the hungry are fed and the naked are clothed and the ill receive healing, attention, and they're they're all welcome. And all these faces make up the new person in Christ, the body of Christ, the new humanity, the new people of God. Well, okay. one more thought. Before we put the Magi back in the box until next Christmas, um, our last look at them is when they leave. They departed to their own country by another way. Now, I'm taking some liberties here. I know Matthew meant that they took a different route home. I want to make more of it than that. They returned to their own country another way. That is, they were led to Jesus by the star. They were led home another way by a by a dream. They left by another way, not only because of Herod, but also because of Jesus. They had seen Jesus, and now they leave another way than what they came. You get what I'm saying? Uh, Good. when they got home, their country was the same, but they were not the same. They would never be the same. Because anyone who, who encounters Jesus leaves another way. I was this way when I came. And this is how we know that we've encountered Jesus. We leave another way. We leave a different person. Henri Nouwen was a professor at Yale, at Notre Dame, Harvard. Um, He already had been writing books. And he felt God called him away from that. And he wasn't sure what, but eventually it came to him that his calling was to work with developmentally disabled adults. And he ended up landing in Toronto, Canada, at a community called Daybreak. And uh, he talks about his journey that took him there in his book, The Road to Daybreak. And at the end of the book, the book is easy to read because it's just his own daily meditations. And they're very edifying. I found them edifying. When he gets to the end of the book, he is now finally made his way to daybreak. He's been there a year and he writes an epilogue. And and this is after he had finished writing his journal, um, ending when he got to daybreak, but now an epilogue one year after being at daybreak. And I, I just want to close with a couple of things that he says at the very end of his book. If indeed, Jesus is the center of my life. I have to give him much time and attention. I especially want to pray the prayer of adoration, in which I focus on his love, his compassion, and his mercy, and not on my needs, my problems, and my desires. I want my life to be based on the reality of Jesus and not on the unreality of my own fantasies, self-complaints, daydreams, and sandcastles. You know, already we can hear him what he's saying, the true, the beautiful, the good. The last lines of his book, it is becoming increasingly clear to me that Jesus led me to where I never wanted to go, sustained me when I felt lost in the darkness of the night, and will guide me toward the day no longer followed by night. As I travel with Jesus, he continues to remind me that God's heart is indeed infinitely greater than my own. Would you stand with me, please? I'm glad you're here today. you on Facebook. You should have got your plane tickets and flown out here. You should be here, but it's okay. <laughs> May the Lord bless us. Take away all evil and lead us into eternal life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.